Hi, I'm Jahada Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror. My guest today is Jamie Suskind. Jamie is a barrister and an author working at the intersection of tech and politics. His latest book is The Digital Republic on freedom and democracy in the 21st century, and it is a truly excellent book. Jamie, welcome to Tech Mirror. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. Jamie, in your book, you talk about the fact that uh, your generation, and I'm going to include myself in that generation, is the last one that can remember a time before the commercial internet. Now, this is an observation that I have made before, but I think the interesting observation that you made at the same time is that we're also the generation that is too young to remember the 1990s cyber utopianism, and that this helps to sort of shape our our frame when we're engaging in this space. So I wanted to start with a question that we ask most of our guests that come onto the podcast, and that is, what was your first experience with a computer or the internet? I guess my first experience would have been with one of the uh, early Nintendo gaming systems. We got a NES or a SNES, I think, in the early 90s. That was obviously a complete game changer, turning me from a sort of sporty outdoorsy kid into a uh pimply couch potato but uh, uh we, we actually my dad always liked his gadgets so we had various kind of early contraptions palm pilots and scion systems and uh we got uh, i think i got my first desktop computer maybe when i was about 10 or 11 oh wow that's early i think i think i got mine actually at about a similar age um uh, but it's bringing back all of my um, uncool kid because we weren't allowed a Nintendo. Um, and so we were stuck okay. with like Encyclopedia Britannica on a, um, on a CD-ROM. <laughs> so, Jamie, what point did you realise that technology, law and politics was, was going to be something that you would make a career out of? Can you remember that, um, that point or was it something that gradually sort of accumulated? Do you know what? I can actually remember it quite clearly. And it was when I was an undergraduate um studying history and politics and what just struck me as really weird was that we were reading all of these foundational texts about social organization political organization uh, legal organization and you know the works of the great philosophers old and modern but nowhere in the textbooks on our reading list was there anything to do with digital technology and it seemed to me just as a normal undergraduate in kind of 2008, 2009, the advent of the smartphone era, the advent of the social media era, it seemed to me that digital technology was already quite profoundly changing the way that I lived and others around me lived. And I found it odd that the reading that we were doing, you could do an entire degree in politics basically without understanding any of those changes. And so I sort of resolved at that time that maybe I'd find some way of working in the future that would allow me to think deeply about these issues. Well, you certainly have done that. And I I don't normally ask people to read directly from their work on the podcast, but you have this beautiful one-page preface as you open your book. So... As a, a framer for the conversation, rather than asking you to paraphrase it when you've spent so much time writing such a beautiful uh, one-pager, I thought we might ask if you could read it to our listeners, perhaps a, uh, a, a private reading just for them. Oh, that's, well, I, 
as long as you don't think I'm self-indulgent, I'm, I'll happily do that. That is, I, it's not self-indulgent because I'm asking you to do it. <laughs> uh, fine. He, okay, here we go. Here's how the book starts. Not long ago, the tech industry was widely admired and the internet was regarded as a tonic for freedom and democracy. Not anymore. Every day, the headlines blaze with reports of racist algorithms, data leaks, and social media platforms festering with falsehood and hate. Politicians denounce the tech giants in extravagant terms. Regulators crack their knuckles ominously. In the boardrooms of Silicon Valley, lawyers and lobbyists are limbering up for the fight of their lives. What went wrong? It is tempting to point the finger at a few big companies and the people who run them. Indeed, the story of digital technology is often told as a kind of Shakespearean tragedy propelled by the flaws of its leading characters. But what if human failings are only a small part of the story? What if the problems at the heart of the tech industry are much bigger than any individual or company? This book aims to persuade you that the challenges presented by digital technology are not the fault of a few bad apples. They are the result of our shared failure to govern technology properly, a failure derived from decades of muddled ideas and wishful thinking. To reclaim the promise of digital technology and protect the things that matter most to us, we will need to do more than wag our fingers or wring our hands. The task is more fundamental. We will have to change the way we think about technology, ourselves and each other. This book suggests how. Thank you, Jamie, for indulging me uh, by reading that out. Um, one of the things that, that really stood out to me in that was that the way that you frame this as a, a failure to govern technology, which is obviously the key motivating force for me in establishing the Tech Policy Design Centre uh, here at ANU. The other thing that really resonates with me uh, in that preface is the way that you refer to the fact that we need to change the way that we think about technology, each other and ourselves. Um, it is also, I think, a rare thing for people um, to make suggestions on how to address these changes. There's a lot of people who, uh, who critique the current system. There's not a lot that makes suggestions. I really want to delve into your suggestions for how, and we'll spend most of the podcast on that. But early on in your book, you make the point that software engineers have become social engineers, that technologies contain rules that we have to follow, and those rules condition our behaviour even if we sometimes don't realise that they're conditioning our behaviour. I often say that technology is shaped by humans, but technology is shaping us. And we sometimes forget that technology is actually shaped by uh, people and we can shape it differently. This often is quite an abstract term uh, uh, explanation to give to people. You have some really tangible explanations or examples in your book of how technology is shaping humans. You call it how technology is exerting power on people. Can you give us a couple of those examples? Absolutely. So what I'm trying to do is explain this intuition that I think a lot of people have but without it being fully formed, which is that there is something political about digital technology. There is something about it that is relevant, not just for our consumer desires, but for our kind of social welfare and political organization. And the answer that I've landed on in my research is essentially that digital technologies exert a kind of power 
and that those who own and control those digital technologies uh, have a great deal of influence over the rest of society and that this is a kind of new political development in our age that previous generations didn't have to deal with. Making it concrete, how do digital technologies exert power? How do they get us to do things we wouldn't otherwise do or not to do things we would otherwise have done? I say there are three ways. The first is that technologies contain rules that the rest of us have to follow. So if you try to post a tweet on Twitter that is more than uh, 280 characters, the tweet literally won't send. And you can't negotiate with the system. You can't compromise with it. Code contains self-enforcing rules. Similarly, before the last presidential election, if you tried to post a particular article from the New York Post about uh, Hunter Biden, Twitter literally wouldn't let you publish it. You couldn't negotiate, you couldn't debate, the code wouldn't let you. And if you imagine driving in a self-driving car and you want it to go slightly over the speed limit because you're in a hurry or it's an emergency, that system might refuse to do so. It might refuse to uh, drive over certain land which its GPS systems told it were trespassing. Um, It might refuse to park in a certain bay. The basic idea is that you can't get digital technologies to do things that they're not otherwise programmed to do. And given that more and more of our lives, our actions, our interactions, our transactions are mediated through digital technology, we are increasingly subject to the hard-edged rules that are written into those technologies. And those rules are everywhere. And that is the sense, the first sense in which I say software engineers are becoming social engineers. They're writing society's rules. And by the way, this observation that code is an incredibly effective method of uh, corralling or controlling human behavior is actually a relatively old idea. People were talking about it in the late 90s and early noughties. But in those days, they were confining their thinking to to so-called cyberspace. I don't think that's true anymore. I think that uh, it applies in real space, meat space as much as anywhere else. Very briefly, the se- the second sorry the second and third ways that technologies exert power. Firstly, they gather data about us, which allows others to influence or manipulate. Uh, and finally, certain technologies uh, will filter our perception of the world. So when you go to a news feed or a digital personal assistant or a social media um, homepage, you're going to be presented with a slice of reality that is going to significantly shape your perception of what is true or false or right or wrong. And those who choose which slice of reality we are presented with, or at least design the algorithms that do so, again, have a degree of power uh, that's perhaps more familiar from from kind of older analyses of mass media, uh, but nevertheless, very real. Absolutely. Your book, you talk about several different concepts so that we can have a free-flowing conversation. I thought we'd do a lightning round of definitions, if you're up for it, to define some of the key terms that you use in your book. And I'm going to give you the challenge of defining them in one minute or less, uh, just to add extra pressure as you take a big sip of coffee. Um, (laughs) All right. So we've got four definitions for you. Um, The first one, is a concept that you refer to as market individualism. This, I say, is the dominant ideology or philosophy which has guided the development of digital technology until now. So I believe that digital technology has been developed in the marketplace, but also regulated according to a set of beliefs that hold that the best way to uh, govern human activity 
is to let individuals pursue their own self-interest according to norms of competition mainly rather than cooperation um, and in pursuit of individual autonomy and the like and let the market reach some kind of equilibrium about how to uh, you know how humans and tech companies and the like should behave that i say is the conscious or subconscious way that we have developed digital technologies so far in the last 20 years and you won't be surprised to learn that it's the main thing that i criticize in the book and say we need to replace all right, Jamie. So we're up for the second one now, unaccountable power. Right. So the book basically concedes that you're not going to be able to make technologies less powerful. Powerful, I define as, you know, the ability to get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do or not to do things they would otherwise have done. And that's a very rough and ready definition. And I, and I know political scientists will say there are other ones. Um forgive me for hedging like a lawyer but that is the rough and ready definition of power but what do we mean by holding it accountable well when you hold power accountable you first of all make it transparent and obvious in how it's being used you secondly have the opportunity to set the rules and parameters for how power is used and you thirdly have the ability if power is misused or outside those rules or parameters to challenge it um and that's what the book is about, essentially. It's about finding ways of challenging power to make it accountable. Okay. And then the next definition uh, that we have is republicanism. Um, and then just to give you the heads up that this, the one following that is digital republicanism. So you may want to take them together. Right. And so this is the kind of core alternative to market individualism that I try to outline in the book. The philosophy of republicanism with a small r, not a big r, is an ancient idea that can be traced all the way back to, the, to antiquity. And it basically objects to unaccountable power in society, wherever it may lie. So it objects to the idea of kings, not just bad kings. It's against emperors, even when they are kind. Uh, it's against husbands having control over their wives, even when they exercise it benignly. It was against the institution of slavery, even when slave masters happened to be kind. What it basically says is that there is an injustice wherever one group in society has the power to interfere arbitrarily in the affairs of another, even if they happen to use that power in a way that is sometimes responsible or to their liking. And the way it translates into digital republicanism is, can be put pretty simply. The problem isn't Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. The problem is the idea of Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, the idea that now and yes, in the future, there will be persons who hold great power simply by virtue of owning and controlling digital technologies. And they may sometimes exercise that power in ways that we like, or, or they may exercise it in ways that we don't like. But for the Republican, uh, the job of the citizen is not to wait and hope and you know find out. It is to put in place institutions and structures to make sure that that power is always exercised in a way that is uh, acceptable to the citizenry. Thank you, Jamie. Now, we've just been talking off the recording about the fact that I have had a tough day today. And so I would like to suspend reality and transform the world that we currently live in to the United Digital Republic of Suskind. And I would like you to paint me a picture of what it would be like to be a citizen living in your digital republic. And then we're going to drill down into some of those specific concepts. So at a high level, the digital republic that I imagine is a world of extraordinarily 
capable and uh, ever-present technologies, but where those technologies are governed and engineered in a way that makes democracy stronger, not weaker, makes us more free, not less free, and improves the quality of our social justice rather than undermining it. That's the kind of high level. Uh, And the way that I imagine doing it is by putting in place legal and political structures that make sure that technology, or it makes at least make sure as far as possible, that technology develops in ways uh, that lead to the outcomes that I've just described. And that, as I mentioned a moment ago, is about holding those who create technology slightly more accountable for the work that they do. So I think you're likely to see, for instance, powerful figures in the tech industry subject to professional standards of the kind that other people of social responsibility have, like doctors or lawyers. You're likely to see tech tribunals where you can challenge uh, otherwise unaccountable exercises of digital power. You know, some algorithm makes a decision about your life or you're booted off a platform and it ruins your business. You want to have a quick and easy way of challenging that. I would like to see Um, deliberative mini publics where people can have input into the policy choices that are later translated into the law that governs digital technology. Uh, I'd like to see social media platforms better regulated and I have a model for doing that, but also new rules and standards governing the use of data, governing the use of algorithms. And essentially the purpose of all of these measures is to create a world in which those who own and control digital technology don't have too much unaccountable power and where the technologies themselves are channeled into purposes that are not just good for kind of capitalist innovation, but also good for social cohesion, social justice, uh, and the preservation of democracy and the rule of law. And I think this is another thing that really uh, stands out to me in your book is that a lot of people who write this type of book proposing to the extent that people do make constructive suggestions, it's usually, it often has an anti-tech bent, whereas your book is actually very optimistic about the role in technology uh, in our society um, if it is governed properly. And that very much um, aligns with uh, with my own view. Um, when, you, when you put that uh, describing a, that that picture, I mean, you have a number of um, common sense proposals um, in the book. One of them is um, something that is perhaps uh, would be considered to be a little bit more radical, and that is a duty of openness. Can you explain to us what you mean by this uh, duty of openness and why it's so foundational uh, to your digital republic? Yeah, so the, the idea is that if you want to govern something, and this applies in every area of society, not just technology, if you want to govern something, you have to have an idea about how it actually works and is functioning, which is why you have inspectors in factories or you have health checks in, and hygiene checks in, in restaurants. Uh, it's why you have reporting requirements for companies. You need a degree of transparency. And transparency is a topic that's been going in and out of fashion in computer science for many decades. And there are feverish debates these days about the extent to which, for instance, very powerful machine learning systems can be made transparent at all because they are obscure in their inner workings, even to those who engineer them. Um, So what I first of all try to do in the book is understand or come to a, a kind of come to a a conclusion about how 
transparent a technology ought to be in a digital republic. Because I think saying that every technology should be really transparent is wrong. Some, tra- some technologies we barely need to regulate at all. Others, if you make them too transparent, uh, it can undermine the purpose of what they're doing and allow people to game them. And it can destroy the kind of commercial confidentiality that's needed for innovation. So there's a subtle balance to be struck. And the where I come down to it is essentially this. I think digital systems have to be designed in a way that is sufficiently transparent that they can be reasonably challenged according to the legal rights and standards which govern them. That basically means if there is a law or a regulation that applies to a digital technology, those who manufacture and design it must make it sufficiently transparent to show that it is at least compliant with that law. If there is no law, then they don't don't need to do it. Or if it's a very mild or, or, or... unobtrusive law, then the duty of transparency isn't going to be too difficult. But the point is this, you can't have a society in which you don't know whether digital technologies are actually compliant with the laws that govern them. And the burden, in my view, has to be on those who manufacture them to, sh- to be able to show at any given time, whether it's to a regulator or to a court, that a technology is functioning in a way that is, that is lawful. And how does that work um, when you have um, technologies operating globally? Um, how do you envisage the digital republic um, uh, in the context of, um, I guess, many digital republics uh, globally if, if this vision um, is able to, to be realised? Yeah, so here is an area where I maybe depart from some of the conventional wisdom. I, I don't start with the idea that it is desirable or practicable to have kind of global governance of digital technology. Firstly, I I just don't think it will ever happen or at least won't meaningfully happen in the short or medium term. I don't think you're going to get Chinese and American and European agreement on how to govern social media platforms or or how to govern artificial intelligence. Secondly, I'm not even sure that seeking that kind of agreement is necessarily a helpful thing. You know, why should someone living in France or Germany have their social media platforms governed according to First Amendment norms from the United States that are alien to their traditions and to their morals and values. It doesn't immediately strike me as right. And there's also just a pragmatic recognition that businesses already, they already operate differently depending on the jurisdiction in which they feature. So Facebook is very different in Turkey than it is from in Germany. And in turn, it's different in Germany than it is from in the United States. Companies obviously don't like having to adapt their global businesses to the local needs of the jurisdiction in which they're operating, but they do it. Uh, and they that's just one of the burdens of doing business in a globalized world. And every company that seeks to do business in a globalized world has to, um, to try. So what I expect and hope for is a kind of is for the digital republics of the world to be built on a kind of Uh, patchwork basis rather than a a top-down basis will it be perfect obviously not there are going to be difficulties in enforcing local laws against transnational corporations just like it's difficult for instance to get big companies to pay their tax when they can locate offshore my point is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good i mean just because it's hard to impose taxation or environmental regulations on companies doesn't mean we aren't constantly trying and uh, I, I see the same with digital technology. I think at least in, in some of the major markets of the world, whether they are 
the Chinese market or the American market or the European market. I don't think companies are going to leave these markets. They'll want to sell into them. And if they want to sell into them, they are likely to adapt to the regulatory demands of that environment. Look at Microsoft, for instance. Its whole its global business is now GDPR compliant uh, simply because the GDPR was introduced in Europe. It's been called the the California effect or the Brussels effect. Basically, the idea that if certain jurisdictions adopt certain rules uh, and those are jurisdictions which are popular ones for selling into, then companies will adapt their rules accordingly. So long story short, as a matter of principle and practice, I, I think we have to accept that we still live in a Westphalian world and that the nation state might be one of the best ways of regulating digital technology. I suppose the European Union is a partial exception to that because it governs at the union level and it does so in quite a good way. Yeah, look, I, I just wanted to come back to the first point that you made about global governance and um, your thoughts on potentially the futility of that. And, you know, you know that I've spent several years negotiating at the United Nations um, on exactly these issues. And I think it often surprises people when I say that I actually really fundamentally agree with what you've said, that making meaningful, game-changing progress at the UN level or at the global level on issues surrounding um, technology, digital issues, cyber issues, really, in my view, is something um, that is unlikely, at least in the, the short to medium term much more likely um, is to have progress when we have national champions um, that focus on these issues that are brave enough to really make the structural and regulatory changes that are required in this space but then who also work with uh, regional organizations for example the eu as you said is a great example um but also like-minded groups so you know countries that might for example be committed to using technology uh, and regulating technology in a way that strengthens rather than undermines democracy and the more and more we have these national champions demonstrating that it is possible to effectively regulate technology and building these groups of like-minded countries that are also doing that, the more other countries will start to look and see the benefits of this type of model. And I think it's by doing that that we will then have this incremental global change that will lay the foundations to be able to have the global breakthroughs that we need in this space. And in the interim, it's really important that whilst we might be focusing on national or regional or like-minded efforts, that we are still also present and really actively engaged in the global conversations as well. Because there is a real risk that if we take our eye off the ball at the global discussions, that progress might be pushed through by other countries whose interests are, you know, or who's have authoritarian leanings and um, really different views on how human rights might apply online. If we're not actively present in those discussion discussions at a global level, there is really a high risk that um, rights and responsibilities that already exist uh, will be eroded. So whilst it may not be where we expect to have 
you know, the major breakthroughs in the short term, it's really important that we don't allow any backsliding at the global level while we're focusing on those regional uh, and, and national uh, conversations. And, and I think one of the areas where you um, delve into some detail in your book on this is uh, around social media. And so I'd love to drill down a little bit more on that with you and how it is you would envisage uh, governing social media in your digital republic. Yes, of course. So the key thing when governing social media is to make sure that you don't have the government, that particularly the central state, meddling in individual decisions about certain bits of content. I think we have to recognize that by virtue of how large they often are, and just because human speech is messy and imperfect, that there is no perfect system of regulating speech online. And in fact, aiming for anything close to it is likely to end in disaster. So what you want, I think, is a system that tries to reduce some of the most serious risks associated with social media platforms rather than making them perfect. That involves, I think, what I would describe as structural regulation. What do I mean by that? You would require social media platforms. First of all, you'd categorize social media platforms depending on the level of social responsibility and risk that they bear. A large part of that would be how big they are. So obviously, you know, Facebook, which has more users than Christianity, is of more regulatory interest than the local chat room for knitting enthusiasts. Um, and but of course, size isn't the only thing, you know, because some very small chat rooms or platforms are extremely socially risky and dangerous because of the things that are going on in them. However, you choose to do it, you want a categorization system of kind of high risk to low risk. And then what you want to do is require system, uh, social media platforms to have in place reasonable systems, not perfect systems, but reasonable systems uh, for meeting certain, certain social aims. Those aims might be, for instance, uh, reducing the prevalence of um, mis health misinformation or reducing the opportunity for foreign interference in the democratic process or uh, reducing the prevalence of material which encourages young women to self-harm or go on unhealthy diets. Whatever it is, it's for society to choose its aims and then it's for the platforms to put in place reasonable systems for the meeting of those aims. And what the platforms would therefore have to show to the regulators is not that they get every decision right, not that there was no flaws in the way that they moderate content, but that they have in place appropriate systems, uh, which by and large we can live with and which are satisfactory. And if they can show that, then they won't be liable for individual bits of content that are posted on their platforms or individual mistakes that they make. Uh, and that to me just strikes me as a, a kind of muddy but helpful compromise which is superior to the way that we currently do it. And by the way, the system that I'm describing borrows quite a lot of thinking from both the draft law that's been considered in the UK and some of the proposals that are coming out of the European Union. And one of the things that you, you said there is that um, it's up to society to choose the aims. How, how would that actually happen in practice? Broadly, what I'm saying is that we need to use the democratic process to decide on the ends and purposes of regulation in this area. And 
that's actually a really important Republican principle because what we're trying to optimize for should reflect what the people care about. How do you reflect what the people care about? Well, one way is to use the traditional democratic process, uh, so parliaments and legislatures. Um, there are other ways too, though. I mean, in the book, I propose these things called deliberative mini-publics, which basically use sortition to convene uh, panels of ordinary citizens in ideal deliberative conditions and get them to think carefully about particular challenges or particular aims and goals, you know, just like they used in the Irish abortion and gay marriage um, examples. And that's another kind of quasi-democratic or democratic way of taking the country's temperature. I suspect different countries will have different priorities and different um, aims. And I think that's okay. And also each country will have its own democratic traditions. You know, in Switzerland, they love a referendum. But actually, in the UK, despite our recent Brexit experience, a referendum is actually quite alien to our political traditions. So there are other ways that we try to take the temperature of the people. In a sense, as long as it's reasonably democratic, I'm agnostic about it. The point, though, is that the, the matters for which regulation is developed can't all the matters which are, which govern social media can't just be chosen by the companies themselves or the people who are running them. So it's interesting hearing you describe that. So we have um, with our online safety legislation, uh, which is similar to the online harms legislation that is uh, being proposed in the UK, um, which uh, became effective in Australia at the start of this year, the basic online safety expectations or otherwise known as the BOWS for uh, those in the know. Um, and uh, the BOWS only relates to uh, safety issues. So it doesn't relate to things like foreign interference or misinformation, disinformation, but it's essentially setting out expectations um, for social media companies um, in relation to that. What's different about um, the way that Bose operates and what you're describing, though, is that Bose is essentially um, a, uh, a administrative document, document signed off by the minister um, and then administered by the eSafety Commissioner. Um, and so um, it's uh, slightly different from, for example, the mini public um, example um, that you uh, had given. Um, I, and I would really uh, encourage people who are interested in this concept of mini publics to read that part of, um, well, read the whole book. But um, I think what stood out to me was your description about um, ideal deliberative conditions, um, which is something that I think is missing in general from a lot of uh, public debate. Um, maybe if you can just touch on that, and we'll, we'll move on um, to the next question. Yeah, I mean, very briefly, ask yourself the question. You know, I, how could I be a better citizen? And what most of us think is that we could be better citizens if we just had a little bit more time to think about the political problems facing the country, if we had a little bit more information that we could trust, if we had the ability to discuss it, but in quite fair and controlled conditions with our, with our fellow citizens, if we had the ability to question the leading experts, if we had the time to come to a considered view and judgment, with most of politics, that's not how being a citizen works. We've all got other stuff going on and most people are too busy or not interested. The deliberative mini public tries to recreate the kind of perfect conditions of being a citizen, whether it's for a weekend or a month or over the course of a year, whatever it is. And it chooses citizens at random and gets them to be their best selves. It's a little bit like a jury, but it's actually much more 
that structured and kind of proactive in the way that it is designed to get people thinking and talking. And all of the empirical evidence shows, I mean, there's a huge OECD study of this, but all of the empirical evidence shows is that people are better citizens in the conditions of a deliberative mini public. People do tend to reach quite interesting and often very workable and sensible solutions. And people who are not in the mini publics tend to respect their decisions uh, as having been the process of a legitimate um, procedure, the outcome of a legitimate procedure. So uh, it's, a, it's a kind of lost form of the democratic art, which comes from the ancient world, but which we don't use very much. And it's just one, it's just one other tool in the toolbox if we were trying to make the world a little more democratic. I know that you say uh, that um, implementing some of these solutions would be fiendishly hard um, and you argue that this should not be seen as an argument not to change but rather seen as reasons to find new and superior models of governance Um, or really um, that just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing nothing. Um, So I am uh, going to press you a little bit on that and say let's imagine in Australia we're currently dealing with revelations that our former Prime Minister was sworn in to five different ministerial portfolios uh, in secret. Um, You are currently in a situation in the UK where you are um, uh, hopefully going to have a a new Prime Minister appointed. I like um, imagining alternate realities, as you can see today. Um, Let's imagine that you are now the Prime Minister of the UK. Um, What would be the three policy or policy th- uh, policies that you would implement or changes that you would make immediately to help us to transition from the current system that we have towards this model of a digital republic uh, that you uh, have uh, created such a vivid picture of today? The first change I would make would not be legislative. It would be to introduce a cabinet level position for a Secretary of State uh, in charge of digital innovation and regulation. And it's baffling to me that that doesn't exist. Uh, It's sort of parceled up between departments. And then there is this one department here called the Department for Culture, Media, Sport, Digital Culture, Media and Sport, as if those things can all just be rolled together. (laughs) I think, think, you know, the digital developments mark one of the most profound and difficult challenges for humankind this century. I think it needs its own cabinet level minister and I think it should be considered one of the great offices of state. That's point number one. Listeners, I'm just popping in here uh, to make a note that this is actually quite similar to a proposal that we have also made in the Tech Policy Design Centre's first report, Tending the Tech Ecosystem. This report flips the question of what should the regulations be in the field of governing technology and says, who should the tech regulators be? One of the key findings of that report is that we need to have better coordination from the political level through to the policy makers and the regulators. And we propose a model uh, to facilitate that uh, within the Australian context. If you're interested in uh, learning more about that model or the report and its findings, uh, we'll put a link in in the pod notes for you. Now back to Jamie. The second thing I'd do is I think I would pass or try to pass social media regulation of the kind that we discussed earlier, uh, because I think that that would immediately help to kind of steady the social ship. Uh, I think if social discourse is just being eroded and eroded and getting worse and worse, 
uh, it's very hard to achieve other democratic goals. And so I think having in place a stable and sensible system of regulation, just like we do for broadcasting, uh, is an important part of being a mature democracy. Then I guess, what would the third thing I do? I, I think the third thing I do is probably reform the laws governing data. And this is something that I talk about a bit in the book. We have the GDPR, obviously, in the UK and in the EU, which is one of the more protective systems of data protection in the world. Um, I think in some respects, it's much too burdensome and challenging for small businesses. Uh, it sort of imposes burdens where those burdens aren't needed. Uh, but in other respects, it insuffic it's insufficiently protective of us, particularly in the face of powerful machine learning systems, which can use our data in ways that would have been um, surprising even just 20 years ago. So I think those are the three big things that I would do on in week one, uh, if I was, heaven forbid, prime minister. Oh, I think we should elect you immediately. Um, I haven't been following <laughs> it closely, but I think you're probably the strongest candidate in the current race. Um, so uh, I mentioned earlier, Jamie, that that your book um, is actually quite an optimistic book. That you, you're setting out this vision and saying, "Look, let's let's actually put some solutions on the table and start having a debate about what we need to do, rather than just saying, "Gosh, this is hard." Um, one of the things that you you say, I think it's actually in the opening paragraph of your book is that your book is for those who are excited about digital innovation, but concerned that we may be unprepared for the future that is coming into view. And I come across a lot of people who uh, fit into that category, I would say, that, that they are concerned about the future, but are uh, also a bit hesitant or um, uh, don't quite know how to break into this field or what they should be doing um, as uh, individuals. And one of the things that you say is we should stop interacting with technology as consumers and uh, start engaging with technology as citizens. So what advice would you have for listeners who, who fit into this category, who want to get involved, but are maybe a little bit tentative? Remember right at the beginning of the discussion, um, when uh, you invited me to read from the preface, that one of the things I said was that we need to think differently about our relationship with digital technology. This is one of the key ways, uh, and I'm about to sound quite pessimistic, but I don't want it to be heard that way. I'm often asked when I give talks and interviews, you know, what can I do? What can, what can I do for my family? And that is very much thinking of the kind that I was describing as market individualism, whereby we expect individuals to look out for their own digital rights, even in the face of extraordinarily powerful companies using extraordinarily powerful technologies that they can't understand uh, still less hold to account. The kind of paradigm example of this is these ludicrous consents and terms and conditions that we accept 10 or 15 times a day, a, 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 a truly farcical system of law, which does nothing to rebalance the imbalance and power between the two parties, but in fact really entrenches it for the stronger party who can lay down its terms and the weaker party, you and me, uh, just end up uh, clicking yes. The point about digital technology is this. When people ask, what can I do? It's a little bit like what a, a, a worker 100 years ago might have asked, you know, what can I do to get higher wages? 
And the answer is what you can do is is not try to act alone, because if you resign your job, there'll just be someone else to take your place, but to come together uh, in, say, a trade union and try and achieve change collectively. The, the, the political challenge goes back even further. It's the challenge of the kind of subject who said, what can I do to challenge the power of the king? And the answer is, you can do basically nothing, uh, but together we can do quite a lot. I don't want to tell people that you know, having more understanding of digital technology or being smart about which settings they flick when they're using Google is the answer to the unaccountable power of digital technology. It isn't. We need better laws and we need better collective institutions and regulation. When you go into a building, you're not presented with a schematic of that building and asked to sign a consent that you agree that it is safe for human habitation. You expect that that building has been built by someone who is regulated and accredited. You expect that somewhere a law requires the people who maintain that building to keep it in acceptable state. The strain is taken off the individual and placed uh, on the entity, and it's placed there by a form of collective power. So the digital is political. I, I don't think there is an enormous amount that people can or should be doing, so they shouldn't be beating themselves up in their own individual lives because taking on the power of digital technology is like trying to hold back the sea if you're doing it on your own. But together, through political processes, there's a lot that we can do. And we've got to get out of the mindset that if we were all just a little bit more responsible as individuals, this problem would be solved. That is a deceptive and unfair mindset which we've allowed to creep in uh, with the help of the tech industry. And I think we need to rebut it. And indeed, um, that is very much the motivation, uh, once again, uh, for establishing the Tech Policy Design Centre uh, is because we want to focus on the design of technology policy, um, as you say, to have better laws and regulation in this space. And I fundamentally believe that it is possible to have better laws and regulations in this space. Um, and certainly that the burden shouldn't be resting uh, on individuals. Um, so, Jamie, we're coming up to time. Um, the final question that we ask all of our guests is uh, for recommendations. Um, so books, Twitter recommendations, podcasts. Um, I can see you looking at your bookshelf there. What, what's your go-to uh, in this field? And I, I suspect the list is long. One of the best books I've ever read, but which is also one of the best books in this field, is a book called Code 2.0. Oh my God, yes. By Lawrence Lessig at Harvard. And uh, he, I should say, he's he's a he's become a friend and supporter of my work. But it's a genuinely visionary piece of legal and political analysis, and it laid the intellectual foundations for so much important thinking that has followed since. I think it, it the book must be twenty years old now, or nearly yeah. twenty years old, but it still reads in an incredibly current and contemporary way. That's the book I think that shaped my thinking more than almost any other piece of work. So, Jamie, that was also the book that got me. I almost mentioned it earlier when you were talking about code as law and it being an older, um, uh, being that being a concept that's been around for a while. Code 2.0 was the book that I picked up in Heathrow Airport when I was transitioning through, um, travelling from Ghana to Mali, um, do that geography for you. And I picked it up uh, in Heathrow Airport and it led to my career change from uh, diplomacy into um, cyber policy. So, that's there you fascinating. go. I highly wow. endorse that book. 
Brilliant. All right. Well, look, thank you so much for that, Jamie. Um, we uh, will finish here, unless there's anything uh, burning that you haven't said that uh, that you feel uh, we need to. We can end in a in a love-in for Lawrence Lessig. Uh, not at all. I mean, I just want to say that I think that, I, I, well, I just want to say that I was delighted to come on this podcast. I think the work that you are doing uh, is incredibly important and different in the ways that you've described. And so um, it's nice. I would also reflect on the fact that it's quite, you know, like 10 years ago, this kind of field, I think, barely existed. When I was researching my first book in sort of 2015, 2016, a lot of the stuff written about digital technology fell into the kind of Californian idealism of the late 90s and early noughties, an idealism that was largely created and sustained by the industry itself. And there's been this extraordinary renaissance, and I think you guys are right at the forefront of it, of critical, analytical, political thinking about technology in the last six or seven years. And to my mind, it's the most important work that a university could be doing. So I'm just grateful that you're doing it. Oh, thank you, Jamie. Well, we are very grateful for your work. Um, it was lovely to meet you when you were out here in Australia. I, I look forward to more conversations, um, hopefully um, not down a scratchy uh, phone line on dodgy hotel internet at my at my end. So thank you for bearing with us. Um, and um, we will uh, uh, hopefully meet again soon. Thank you. I hope so. Take care. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced on Ngunnawal lands by Jack Fox. Ben Gowdy provided invaluable research and post-production support. If you would like to support the pod, please give us a five-star rating or even better, leave us a short review. This really helps us to get the word out. We also love it when you send us questions or comments. We read them all. You can find out more by following us on Tech Policy Design on Twitter or LinkedIn or Google Tech Policy Design Centre and follow the links. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved.